This is Story and Rain Talks, the Story and Rain podcast. I'm Tamara, founder and editor in chief. After over 20 years in the fashion and magazine industries, I launched StoryandRain.com, a digital fashion, beauty, and lifestyle publication where we're bridging the gap between reading a magazine and shopping its pages. On this podcast, you'll discover the emerging trends and tastemakers that matter right now. As a catalyst for creativity and through candid conversations with our community of cultural arbiters, we're your resource for discovering today's most interesting people, projects, and products. And we'll explore the origins for game-changing ideas and careers. With our high-low approach to style and the belief that there's magic in the mix, we're going to inspire you to live your most stylish life. In the words of Laverne Cox, and during part two and episode 99 of Story and Rain Talks, more tea was spilled than she ever thought she'd share in public. The conversation continues with more candid conversation and our Story and Rain cover star, quote, being herself all over this podcast. Laverne has done a lot of work on herself, and you'll hear all about it and feel it here, too. Get ready to get inspired. And speaking of inspiration, we talk about what gets her into an inspired place. Music is huge. We break down the award-winning star's major magazine moments, her acting process, and how she studies actors. You'll hear her thoughts on the influence of her Orange is a New Black co-star Kate Mulgrew and on fellow actor Nicole Kidman's recent Oscar-nominated performance. She shares what she does to tune out the fame when she needs to and create balance. You'll hear more about her activism and on a personal level, what she looks for in a partner. Laverne talks about worthiness being a birthright and how she shows up in relationships without something to prove. Having just hosted the E! Oscars red carpet and getting ready to host it for Grammys, Laverne discusses her collaboration with the network and what she's come to learn about how to tackle her thrilling and tough role as red carpet representative. We talk her intellectual side. We, of course, talk all about being inventing Anna's Casey Duke, meeting her, and what she calls their organic overlap. Laverne shares her own take on how people are conned and what the Much Love series invites people to think about. You'll hear all about Shonda Rhimes and Shonda Lan, the women who have believed in her along the way, and bringing 200%. Laverne is someone who works to deliver. I asked the question about what we haven't addressed yet in terms of trans representation in the media and what she would like to see more of. We talk about her desire to have fun and what's next, including something in music, being obsessed with letting things go, being done with living in survival mode, and her current favorite things and aspects of her lifestyle. Please enjoy part two, Laverne Cox. You've also had momentous moments with magazines from the Time Magazine cover in 2014 to Meghan Markle picking you to be a part of the September 2019 cover story of British Vogue. How did you feel on set with Time Magazine for the cover story, the transgender tipping point. Can you remember what you were thinking and feeling on set that day? That moment, that moment changed my life. And, and the interesting thing about the Time cover, it was revealed on my birthday, May 29th, 2014. Gemini? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, Gemini. Me too. 
the cover was revealed the day after I got a Critics' Choice nomination for my work uh, on the first season of Orange is the New Black. It was a few months before my first Emmy nomination. And so the Critics' Choice nomination was historic. I was the first trans person to be nominated for a Critics' Choice Award, first to be nominated for a um, primetime acting Emmy, obviously the first to be on the cover of Time magazine. So that was the year when everything changed. But when I was on the set of Time, I remember they called it a cover try and they said, if a big news item happens, then we, you know, you won't make the cover that will bump you. And so I just was sort of like, I remember um, Deja was there to do my makeup and M, who are dear friends of mine, as well as like, you know, they've done my hair and makeup. And I just remember being so in disbelief, but just in such like, I wasn't meditating at the time, but I remember the morning of, I just like woke up and I was just like so grateful for the opportunity. I just was like, I want to be present and I want to kill it. And I want to just do my best. Like, I just remember being there and then they were photographing me and it's like, you know, it's not a fashion magazine. So we were, you know, and I had my, I dressed myself. I was really into Hervé Leger dresses at the time. I got in this Hervé Leger dress for, you know, I had two different Hervé Leger dresses. One was red and one was blue. And... I was just doing my thing, you know, I was just posing and probably a lot less free then than I am now on a photo shoot, but it was more serious. I just remember feeling so, not that I had arrived, but so like, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. That moment particularly felt like this is exactly what I'm supposed, what I'm here for, because the Time Magazine cover was was about. They called it the transgender tipping point, you know, very you know controversially. So the community has had a lot of things to say about that since then. But that moment was again bigger than me. That moment was the sort of the coalescing of my me being an actor on a popular show, but then also having a lot to say about my community and about trans representation and how we should have conversations with and about trans people. And so it just felt like the culmination of like so much of my life's work, getting to sort of have all these things come together in this cover. And so it just felt right. It just felt very aligned and connected. It was it was aligned in a way that an alignment with an energy that was bigger than me. And for British Vogue, you were part of an amazing, interesting group of women who posed for the magazine for a cover story titled Forces of Change on behalf of guest editor Meghan Markle. Yeah. It was you, yeah. you know, fabulous yeah. in Hermes with other extraordinary women photographed by Peter Lindbergh. And you said it was an emotional day for you. Take us back to that day. And then also give us a little BTS on what the creative process was like for that photo shoot. Oh, there's tea I could spill on that. But I woke up that day. um, That was my first Vogue cover. I remember waking up that day and I stretched because I didn't, I was like, I was going to be ready for anything. I remember getting a, a good breakfast, but I didn't eat too much. And I was like, this is my first vote cover. I am not going to let anything keep this day from being absolutely magical for me. And I arrived and we did makeup and hair first. Usually we do wardrobe first, but we did makeup and hair first. And Grace, the legendary Grace Coddington um, styled it. And I just have been a huge fan, obviously. Mr. Lindbergh. Oh my gosh. And I that, believe that was his last photo shoot before he passed away. So we did the hair and makeup and it was all very pared down, which I had to get behind. Which I'm not a fan of, but I like surrendered. You know, I like makeup. I'm like, let's wear makeup, you know? 
<laughs> right. I surrendered to that. And so we did hair and makeup and then we went, then it came to um, wardrobe. And I, I will say this though, it was really interesting. And I gotten really sick that year and I lost a lot of weight and I was thinner than I had been in years and not on purpose. And um, I remember Grace, um, I go to my fitting and Grace was like, you know, I nothing here is probably going to fit you. And we couldn't have anything custom made because I can't tell, you know, designers who's on my cover. And I, and I remember saying to her, well, I've lost a little bit of weight, so let's try, you know, and then everything we tried on fit. <laughs> There's pared down makeup. It's like an overcoat and a suit. We also did a dress. We also did a look in like this blue dress. And there's some video of that on my Instagram. But they ended up using the Hermes look, which was, and I was in sneakers and it was fun. Grace was really interesting because she's so fascinating. Like when we started shooting, I saw Grace's face just kind of light up a little bit. I like, she sort of sat up in her seat a little bit and her, there was just a, a little, you know, Grace is very, she plays it close to the chest, but her eyes, I felt a little glint in her eye. And Peter said, wow, she, she's an, she's an activist. She's, she's so beautiful. She to be an activist. Why is she an activist? She's so beautiful to me. And he said he had not had so much joy shooting someone in years. And it was such an honor to be shot by him. And I just was in such, you know, always have Beyonce playing during photo shoots. And I felt such flow. I felt so just in there. If you see the video of me moving during the shoot, I just felt like in such flow. And Peter was so, he had such calming energy and there was such an excitement and enthusiasm. I mean, Peter Lindbergh, you know, at this point, he was already a living legend and he photographed everyone, you know, and that the fact that he was that excited to be on set with me and that I got him excited to be shooting and that he had such enthusiasm that day was so utterly thrilling for me. It was incredible. It was it was an absolutely amazing iconic day for me. It was my first Vogue cover and it really was everything that I hoped it would be. And I think part of that is because I chose it to be, but I got to work with legends. I mean, um, Grace and, and Peter and, and, and everyone who, I mean, the hairstylist whose name escapes me right now, it was just, all these people were legendary artists that um, Edward, you know, Edward and of course, Megan, I didn't know. So at the time, I didn't know that Megan was the guest editor. It was literally a week before the magazine came out and Edward um, sort of DMs me or he texts me and he's like, I need to call you. And I was in New York for World Pride. I remember I was there and I was like, I have like 20 minutes, you know, I have like 20 minutes there. Yeah, right. (laughs) I really, it was one of those things. And it was the 50th anniversary of Stonewall Pride. It was 2019. So it was like. Right. It like not a regular pride. It was not a regular pride. Like New York was like jumping and I was busy AF. And he calls and he was like, I have the Duchess of Sexes on the line. <laughs> and I was like, um, <laughs> oh, my God, you're you're like on Seventh Avenue or I wherever you No, are. I was still in the hotel. I was still in the hotel <laughs> and I was just sort of like, um, OK. I lo- and I said I loved you in Suits, which is so what I did. I lo- I'm a big Suits fan. And I think I said that. I don't know if I should have. I don't know if I said the right thing. But I loved her in Suits and I love Suits. Yeah, a lot of people love Suits. I thanked her for the opportunity. The fact uh, she chose me. She, she's, she actually chose me for the cover, which is incredible. And it was an incredible experience. And I love Megan for that. And I love Edward. Edward Enemful is really a groundbreaking editor 
for so many different reasons. What he has done with British Vogue, what he's done throughout his entire career, it's absolutely incredible. I think he is just everything. I live for him on a personal level. I live for him professionally. And I'm so proud that British Vogue was my first um, Vogue cover. I'm really proud of that. Oh, British Vogue is my favorite, favorite fashion magazine. It is. And Edward is an incredible talent. On the subject of creative process, what is your creative process like for a role? Is there anything that you do to prepare? And conversely, is there a routine or anything you do upon wrapping a role or a season or a project? Hmm. Wrapping is interesting. You know, Susan Bass used to call it sort of postpartum, particularly for a play. Ooh, I like that. Postpartum. Where you kind of like have to let go of the character. And sometimes some things are harder to let go of than others. Lately, it's been moving on to the next thing. Um, I can't say that I have a ritual because it's, it's like, okay, what's next? But in the preparation, I've been over the past, I guess I've been working with Kimberly Harris for maybe five years now. Um, she's my acting coach. And when I worked with Susan Batson back in the day, we would do character, we would do personal private moments and character private moments. And a private moment is a very acting school thing where you, you know, do an activity where you wake up as the character, eat as the character, sort of play with something as the character. No, that's actually the animal exercise. But um, character private moment is about finding the intimacy of the character, the bottom of the character, where you and the character sort of meet. And so we did our first character private moment when I was actually preparing for bad hair because it was such a as playing this really interesting role that there's not a lot on the page. It was actually a monologue that was cut that gave us a lot of clues about who Virgie was. So we so Kimberly was like, I think we should do a character private moment. And I hadn't done one in like 15 years. And it was so valuable in terms of preparation that like now if there is time I've since bad hair, we've done character private moments or everything. If there's time and for um, the blacklist, we did animal work. For, I did, we did animal work for the first time together with Kimberly, but I'd done a lot of animal work with Susan Batts in her studio. Animal work is basically finding um, an animal that um, sort of mirrors your character. And what was be- brilliant and beautiful about the blacklist is that in the script, my character, Dr. Perillos was called the brazen bull. So I was like, well, the, the animal would be a bull. And so, you know, you go and do research on the animal. If it's possible, you go and observe the animal at the zoo or in the wild or whatever. I don't think bulls are at the zoo. So I watched a ton of, there's so many great like nature videos and whatnot. So I watched a lot of um, videos on bulls and did research on them, like reading about bulls and, and watching videos about their, around their behavior. And then we did an exercise where, you know, you wake up as the animal, eat as the animal, play with something as the animal. And then eventually you put the animal on two feet and like you verbalize as the animal. And so you really put the animal on all fours and really like commit to the animal and then like eventually humanize that animal. And then that can become behavior for the character that can become the voice for the character. And I forgot how much I love animal work. We did animal work for um, Uglies, the movie I just um, shot. We didn't do animal work for Casey Duke for Anna Anna because we had a human being to we, Casey Duke, tons of video on her. Right. We had the human animal as reference, um, you know, Casey Duke herself. But I love animal work. I love doing animal work and I feel like I'm going to keep doing it for everything now. There were moments in the Blacklist where the, I was watching, I didn't even, these things you don't even realize, I was watching the episode back and I like some, uh, their sound kind of came out of me just that I didn't even realize it was, it was like a hmm, like this hmm, like, uh, like this bull sound. I was like, 
I didn't even know I had done it. You know, it was one of those things where it was just like, wow, it just showed up organically in the moment, you know? So these are the things that I love about acting where you, when you prepare, you, you prepare, 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 and then you let it all go. And then you just live in the moment. And so it was so wonderful to sort of see s- some of that work show up. And I made big choices as that character that were, you know, kind of a lot, little over the top, but like they were very much grounded in the animal. They were grounded in the uh, character private moment and the unfulfilled need of the character. So it was all very grounded, but it was big. Some of the choices I made. And I said, I remember saying to the director, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to make some big choices and pull me back if you need to, but I'm going to go for it. Okay. (laughs) And he was like, okay. And he didn't pull me back. Like he did. There was one note he pulled me back on, but he kind of let me go at least the first day. And then he pulled me back more the second day. And it was glorious because it came out of the animal and it came out of the character's unfulfilled need. So it wasn't, you know, just an idea. You know, I think in acting, we talk about like an, um, acting an idea, which is like a no-no. Or is it really grounded in the character's wants and needs? Is it lived? Is it lived, right? Like that, that because you want to sense that there's a history and that is real. How, how do we make things real? You find where you and the character meet psychologically and emotionally, acting truthfully in imaginary circumstances. It was big, but it wasn't an idea because it was lived through the animal. It was lived through the uh, character private moment, finding where the character and I met in terms of our unfulfilled needs. It was all grounded in that. Yes. So, yeah. And I'm, you know, sometimes that can be big. And I have a lot of worlds, though, where I've where I've pulled way, way, way back. Mm, I'm sure. Yeah. And because I have a big personality and sometimes that's just not the character. What gets you into an inspired place creatively? Is it lots of rest? Is it making time to read and to watch? Is it vacation? I know you're traveling recently. What is it for you? It's all those things, actually. I mean, like, music is huge. Sometimes I pick a playlist for, for the character, but a lot of times I, I, list, I find myself listening to opera on, uh, you know, no matter what character it is. Sometimes the character has a playlist, but a lot of times it's opera when I'm on set to just keep me, it just keeps me where I need to be. So music is really inspiring. And it depends on the character. Beyonce. <laughs> Yes, we know that. We all know We were that. playing Beyonce it's, during our entire shoot. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't, there's just so many levels of that. But then a movie too. Like I love film and I love television and watching a film. I'm, I'm God willing, I'm going to shoot a music video. And so like, I've been watching films that inspire me and, and performances that inspire me. And I'm, I get, I'm constructing my own sort of storyline. It's like the music video is going to be a short film if it works out the way I wanted to. And so watching films and watching television inspires me and like great performances inspire me. I love really good acting and like, you can get so many great ideas. Like from actors that you can find ways to incorporate in a lived way and not in an idea way, right? I remember saying to Kate Mulgrew. Brilliant. She, uh, brilliant. I think it was after the fourth season, she, um, a group of the um, cast members had gotten together and watched it all, watched the season together. And I wasn't able to join because I was on the road working because I was always working. Kate is very critical. And she came to me, she's like, I, we all watched the season together and you're very brave. You're very brave as an artist. And I, I, I just was, I was really just sort of taken aback and just very um, moved because I, I'm a huge, huge fan of Kate Mulgrew. And I was like, oh my God, that means so much 
I mean, so much coming from you. I, I, I love you so much and I study you and I, I study actors. And when I've had scenes with her, I noted how she leans into behavior. Like I remember the, the first scene I did with her, I was so intimidated. She's chopping vegetables and talking about like the girls using cucumbers as dildos. And she's chopping these vegetables and she's like got all this energy. She's got a knife and she's going as Kate Mulgrew and it's like Captain Janaway. And I'm like, oh, oh my God, I'm not worthy. Some actors can use behavior to ground them, like the space. So there's things that we can do with an object or behavior to ground us in the place, to ground us in the scene. And Kate and I said, I, I, I would thank you. It means so much coming from you. I, I actually study what you do. And I've noticed that your use of behavior is so intentional and so specific that it's just really beautiful. And she was like, oh, that's my thing, you know? And so it is something that I noticed that she does and she consciously does as an artist. And so that was... A really exciting moment for me. So I watch film and I watch TV and I study what actors are doing. And, and because of my training, I know that, okay, they're endowing this object right now, or they're endowing this place, or they're using behavior to ground themselves in the place, or this behavior is an expression of what this character wants and needs, or an expression of the action, right? In that scene um, with me, when I was um, asking her to get me estrogen, <laughs> and she was like, they're drug estrogen is drugs, and we don't do drugs, and import drugs or whatever the chopping was an expression of the action, right? Of her sort of cutting me down, you know, in that moment, her behavior was an expression of the action of what she was doing psychologically, emotionally in the scene in relationship to me. So there's like all these wonderful things that inspire me when I see brilliant performances from actors. Nicole Kidman and being the Ricardos. I mean, Nicole has done Really brilliant work over the years, but I, there's something, some, this is some of her best work, I think. It's rare that we see an angry Nicole Kidman, like a really angry mm. Nicole Kidman. I feel like a lot of her characters are victimized. She has this emotional depth that's endless, but it is rare that we get to see her angry. And as Lucille Ball, we saw her angry and it was good. But we also saw the creative process, the way that she endowed creativity in that film was so specific the way you see her thinking is that's really hard stuff to do and it sounds so like she's standing there thinking and then but like Nicole was like really specific and it's I was like oh she's visualizing this and this is actually really difficult work to do that she's doing in this and really specific it's brilliant I love great performances I love great films and I study them and and try to you know, try to get better and learn. In that British Vogue article that we were just talking about, you said that there is a tremendous amount of pressure for you as one of the most visible trans people in the world. I can only imagine. And fame in general can be a lot. Couple that with all the time and the energy that you put into your equal rights and public speaking work, which is so important. We've been talking about that. Is there anything that you make sure that you do in your day-to-day life to quiet the pressure, to tune out the fame, to take back your energy for a little balance? You know, I'm consciously letting go of that pressure now. And I just, a lot of it right now is that I've just, I've pulled back on a lot of my activism because feeling that pressure is no longer sustainable. Like my prayers always got, give me permission to do this imperfectly and allow me to be of service. But lately I've been adding to that. Thank you so much, God, for this incredible responsibility. But can I wear this responsibility lightly 
and not have it be a heavy weight on my shoulders. And so I've just been letting go. I've just been consciously like saying, this is not that serious. My boyfriend's been so great at helping me do that too. He's like, he's just, it's not life or death. It's not that serious. It's consciously letting go. It's consciously like saying to myself, lately I've been into that, you know, Invictus line. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Like I'm in control of my life and like how I process energy, how I take things on and looking for joy and having fun and actively practicing gratitude actively, not just in the morning anymore. It's throughout the day. It's slowing myself down. It's breathing. It's the community resiliency model stuff that I talk about in my podcast, the six tools, resourcing, grounding, gesturing, all these things. So it's a lot. I do a lot. I have a whole sort of set of tools that I like can draw from, you know, sometimes it's the reminding myself of the four agreements. Sometimes it's reminding myself um, that when it's hysterical, it's historical. There's a lot of things I do to keep myself together. It's just a bunch of things. What do you look for in a partner, Laverne? Consistency is the first thing. Ooh, that's a good one. I think for most of the women I'm in my life, women I know, and some men, like people are just, flaky AF and are not consistent. So consistency is the first thing when I'm like, you know, being courted or in the early stages, are they consistent is number one. Then um, because the disappearing act is deeply triggering for me and someone who does that, it's not going to work for me because I've had so many men disappear on me. So that's just not going to work. So consistency is number one. Kindness. Kindness. Is he kind and considerate? How does he talk about other people in his life? How does he talk about his friends? If he does, he speak badly about them. How does he talk about his exes? Does he talk about his exes? Kindness, humor. Like, does he make me laugh? Can we laugh together? Can I be, it's really, really silly with him. Like I am so, I was on vacation last week with my boyfriend. I am so silly, like in ways that are like ridiculous, ridiculous. And like, he is here for it. I'm like, okay, this, I'm like acting real crazy right now in a silly way, but he's totally here for it. Um, and we laugh so much. Laughter is kind of the most important thing. And then I, ha- I mean, I have to be attracted to him. There's a lot of men who make me laugh, who are kind and consistent, but I will never want to sleep with them, you know? Uh, <laughs> you know? Because, you know, for, there was a period in my life where like I dated. It was, I dated a lot of douchebags, you know, because they were hot. And I got to a point where I was just like, I cannot be treated badly anymore. So I like opened up like who I dated because I was just like, I'm getting the same results dating the same kind of men. So I need to date different kinds of men. And I found myself, you know, finding men who behave differently, who I was attracted to enough to be in a relationship with them. But like, I, like the man I'm dating now is like, I'm insanely attracted. Like he's so hot. He would have been, there was a, like 10 years ago, I would have been so insecure to date a man this attractive. I would have felt like I wasn't attractive enough that it would have freaked me out because he was so hot. Mm-hmm. And it just would have been a mind fuck. Oftentimes men who are as hot as my boyfriend are douchebags too. That's the issue really. Oftentimes in my history, I'm not saying attractive men are douchebags, but in my personal history, a lot of really hot guys have been assholes, but he's not. He is like fine. He's like model fine. He actually modeled when he was younger. He's model fine and he's 
gorgeous. He's stunningly beautiful by like most people's standards. And he's kind and sweet. And so growth for me, you know, and for me, relationships are about growth. We, it's a very intimate, beautiful relationship, but he's insanely hot. And I am not intimidated by it, but he's also kind. And I feel like I deserve this hot man. <laughs> yes, you do. But my point is I'm insanely attracted to him. Like, but I'm able to handle it. I'm not overwhelmed by how attracted I am that like, I'm able to keep myself, you know, I think too, when a guy was really hot and then also like met all these criteria, I would hustle for worthiness is to, to quote Brene Brown. I would think I was not good enough. And so I would not be myself and try to be who I thought I was supposed to be, to be with this really hot guy. I'm done with that. I don't do that. I, Laverne Cox can't do that anymore. I'm like going to show up as myself. I show up as myself and if it works, great. If it doesn't, it's okay because I'm myself, you know? And I think that, to speaking of Brene Brown, Brene Brown, when she says the opposite of belonging is fitting in. When we fit in, we shape shift, we tell people what we think they want to hear. And when we go into a situation wanting to fit in and we shape shift, and then we don't get what we hope to get out of it, we often feel shame. We often feel like awful about it. But when we show up as our authentic self and we're like, I'm going to show up and allow myself to be seen. And if like the person isn't cool with it, then that's okay. Because at least I haven't compromised myself. I haven't like, you know, shapeshifted into something I'm not to try to please someone or be something because I don't feel like I'm enough. And so I think that now I'm able to date this insanely hot man because I'm enough. I'm enough for better or worse. I'm not perfect, but I'm enough. And it's not because of what I do for work or it's not because of how much money I make. It's because I've earned being enough because I've been through stuff and like I own that and I'm a human being and I'm a child of God and worthiness is a birthright. You know, worthiness is not something that like, you know, and this isn't more Brene Brown work, but her work has been really pivotal for me. And it's a good reminder in this moment. These interviews for me are also therapy. You know, in her work, she says, we know our shame triggers by our qualifiers for worthiness, right? Like we know that like, oh, I'll be worthy when I lose 20 pounds or I'll be worthy when I get that promotion or oh, I'll be worthy when I make enough money. We know those are our shame triggers because that is like the contingency. I'll be worthy when, instead of, knowing intellectually, but knowing in the core of our being, knowing in our nervous systems that we are worthy because we were born, that worthiness is a birthright, that I'm worthy because I'm a child of God. I'm worthy to be here. That I'm worthy of love and belonging. That's what I mean. I'm not saying I'm worthy of like fame or money, but I'm worthy of love and belonging. I'm worthy of like being seen as myself and accepted as who I am, because I am a creation of God. I'm divine, not because of anything I've done, but because I've been made in, in the image of something bigger than me. And like really knowing that in my core allows me to be able to like move through the world, hustling for my worthiness less. I still hustle. I still hustle. I still feel like I have stuff to prove and I have to check that constantly. But I don't go into relationships like that for the most part. It's a work in progress. I think like you get to a point in a relationship where things get trickier and things get more intimate and old habits come up and you have to check yourself. And so I've had to do that recently. I've had to be like, okay, ooh, ooh, you're hustling. Ooh, ooh, you're like going into an old shame tape that's not applicable to this moment. Right. Let's just gently 
let that go, girl, let it go. It's no longer, it's not relevant. You just talked a little bit about Nicole Kidman and about one of this year's films, you know, being the Ricardos. Last March, you stepped into the role of host of Live from E! And in partnering with E! to represent the red carpet, what did the network tell you they wanted from you and what they hoped for you to bring? They wanted Laverne. They wanted me to be myself which is wonderful. I had, in 2020, um, they asked me to host their countdown show and I said, yes. And I, it was, I had a blast and I, you know, there was no pressure. I had a really good time with the co-host and I guess that inspired them to make this offer to me. And so they told me they wanted me to be me, honestly. And that's really what it is. And me is like a lot of things, you know, I, I do love fashion and we think red carpet, we often think about fashion and I, I love that and I have fun with it. I love pop culture. I love artists. I'm very curious. I love, you know, interviewing, talking to people and getting in their business. I guess that's interviewing people. <laughs> so they just want me to be me. And that is a really wonderful thing. And I've worked really hard to accept myself because I, I've cultivated myself and I've grown, I've grown, I've worked on myself in terms of mental health, in terms of healing from trauma and shame and all that stuff and building shame resilience and trauma resilience more accurately. I don't know if we ever fully heal from that stuff. So I've worked on myself a lot. And the working on myself is really about allowing myself to just be myself, right? Like all this like shame and trauma resilience work is really getting all this stuff out of the way so I could just be me. And I think about the Laverne that has always existed, like, you know, the Laverne who used to dance in grocery stores when music would come on and imitate like choreography. You know, I, I, you know, I would do the choreography from Flashdance as a kid and fame choreography. And I wanted to be Darcel from Solid Gold. So I was always dancing around and singing. And then I, you know, developed in college a, a really an interest in feminist theory and, and queer theory. And like, there was this intellectual side of me. And, and then like, I, I got into therapy and I wanted to like, I realized I needed to heal. And so there's just all these things, aspects of who I am that like, I just allow, I just allow without shame or apology. And that's what I've done today in this podcast all over the place. And that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing at E. Ultimately, it's about being a service. So in service of obviously the network, but also for me, the artists that I, that I talk to, it's really important for me as an artist myself to like be respectful of, of artists and, to, and, and in reverence of what it takes to be an artist and, and, and bring something, a uh, performance to fruition or to write a song. We're doing Grammys coming up. So also to honor the artist is, is, is something that's really important to me. We're talking about the red carpet. My background is in fashion. I was a fashion editor at Cosmo, at Oprah Magazine, at Interview. I freelance for a ton of other magazines. I've styled for the red carpet. You know, you were just saying fashion is part of what you are meant to report on. But then there's the art, talking about the films, talking about the music, the TV that's being celebrated that night. A lot is happening all at once. And so reporting and hosting on the carpet is not easy. 
what tips and tricks are in your arsenal at this point now hosting? I've only done two award shows, so I'm still learning. And it's very thrilling, though. There is this point, I mean, we prepare a lot. In a way, it's kind of like acting that you prepare, you prepare, you prepare, and then you just sort of jump and then just hope for the best because you have to be in the moment. It's live. There's someone talking in my ear. There's someone handing me cards. There's someone telling me to do this. Like, people who are scheduled to come don't come. New people come. And we... I mean, it's just, you have to be ready for anything. And that is really exciting. It's actually really exciting so far. The two, I, I, it's this whole, like, anything can happen and you're just kind of like going with it, you know? And it's, there's something thrilling about it because you're on flying by the seat of your pants sometimes. And it is live and anything can happen. And so that's thrilling. So I think, again, you, you have to be yourself. And you have to be in the moment. And I think listening, I think listening is key. I think the biggest thing is listening. Um, listening to the person in my ear, listening to the person handing me cards, listening to my stage manager, to the camera person, and the, and the people I'm interviewing. What's also really thrilling is your role as Casey Duke in Inventing Anna for Netflix, Shondaland, Shonda Rhimes, Casey Duke, the well-known fitness expert and life coach. Everyone's obsessed with this series. You're so good in the role. How did you prepare to play a real person and also for a storyline that has a timeline that was as recent as like a couple of years ago? Yeah, it was, there was something exciting about it. I found Casey immediately exciting. I found this video of her on YouTube where she sort of talks about um, mindset, motivation and movement and, you know, the elements of, you know, sort of fitness in her philosophy. And she has a book called The Show at Love Workouts. So I was just immediately fascinated by Casey and became obsessed with her immediately. And so and there's, I was lucky that there was a lot of video of her on YouTube. She'd also done a, an interview for the writer's room that was filmed that I was able to watch. And then I was able to meet her. I was able to sit down we, um, she trained me, uh, my introduction to her, I went to her building and she trained me with a training session. And then we had a four hour lunch where she told me her life story, very intimately, very generously. What a life, what a woman. I am so grateful for that. And there were so many moments that, you know, when, when you're an actor, often we have to write character bios for fictional characters, right? And Casey was so generous to really give me her bio. And I found a lot of things that I emotionally, that just hit me, like the emotional gut punch from her life. And so that was all very useful when doing a character private moment, but then also getting on set and, and having script moments, even though a lot of that personal narrative Casey's personal narrative, for the most part, that history wasn't expressed in Inventing Anna. I was able to draw from it to play the character. And that is a wonderful gift. What, a, what an incredible woman. It was scary because a lot of people know her. I didn't want her to watch it and be like, oh my God, that's awful. I'm, this is so embarrassing. Luckily, she loves it. She's been sharing videos and clips from the show. Is there something in particular that she's liked about this that's resonated with you that sticks in your mind? She just said I nailed it. And she did say like, you know, Laverne is some, a little more gangster sometimes than I am. I'm a little more gentle. <laughs> I love that. But Casey, if she remembers, there's something she told me from her personal life. There's a little gangster in Casey too. Uh, <laughs> but she's very evolved. I mean, Casey is 66 years old and she's a highly evolved 
spiritual being. She really is. What was exciting about once we got into it and like after I, I realized how much of that is also in me that like the, the spiritual, like Casey has a mantra for everything. Laverne kind of has a mantra for everything. So there was a lot of like just organic overlap that was like, I'm more like Casey than like I realized. And like, sometimes I watch her dancing on Instagram and I'm like, oh my God, like that's me. Um, <laughs> so like, there's just a lot of like organic, like, or overlap between me and Casey, um, which is really, really cool. Um, Shonda Rhimes is kind of brilliant for thinking of that, I think, now in retrospect. I was scared because she's a real person, but I'm so happy that she's happy. She sent me flowers after she saw the whole season and was so proud of me. And she's so encouraging. She's like that. She can't help but like give love and encourage people. That's literally what she does for work, but it is a calling for her. Um, it truly is. You were so close to this incredible story of deception and thievery in New York City. Was there something you were surprised to learn? I don't know if I was surprised. It was what was reaffirmed for me is that often, not always, often when someone is conned, it is because they're trying to get something for nothing. It is because they have their own agenda. Almost everyone in Anna Delvey's life who finds themselves a victim of hers has some sort of agenda, something that they want to kind of get because they believe she's this wealthy heiress and they want to be in proximity. So, you know, people are defrauded, you know, in all sorts of situations and, and they're not trying to get something for nothing, but often that's the case. And so that was something interesting to reflect on. And I think too, there's something about accountability that I think our show invites us to think about. And I always like to remind people of that. You know, uh, Anna did some awful things, but there are people who've done things just as bad or worse, who've never seen the inside of a jail, who, you know, all the, all, you know, all the Wall Street people who sort of brought down the economy in 2008 with predatory lending and speculatory, you know, um, trades on Wall Street not a single one of them went to jail, right? Yeah. That was criminal behavior that ruined so many people's lives. And never mind, you know, I've, I've mentioned, you know, former presidents who've done similar things. That is an interesting thing, I think, to reflect on. In Vendigana, we were talking about Shonda Rhimes, created by Shonda Rhimes. It's a Shondaland production. You know, Story and Rain sat down with the series costume designer, Lynn Paolo, who's brilliant. Oh. She's a longtime collaborator of Shonda's. And we also talked yeah. to Henry Dunn, who was a series production designer for a story on inventing Anna's look in terms of sets and also in terms of costumes. So what stands out for you when you think of this Shondaland production, Inventing Anna? How would you characterize it? First of all, I love Lynn so much. I, you know, going into Shondaland with such... I went in with such enthusiasm and awe and um, excitement and reverence. I'm just a ginormous fan of all of Shonda's shows and getting to be in Shonda land was just, I was like, I was just, I remember being in my fittings, just being like, oh my God, it's being like getting to meet with Shonda. I was just so thrilled. I was like a kid in a candy store, honestly. I felt so taken care of. I felt so cared for in a way that is rare on set. It's not that I've been treated badly, but there was just an extra special care. I think it's important to note. I think a really good example that's not from me, but Katie Lowell's who um, got pregnant when production was shut down because of the pandemic. I remember we were on set and she was saying how she wanted to have a second child, but she 
didn't, you know, when could she have time, you know, to um, take off and she had to work. And, you know, she was like, Shonda was great when I was on Scandal, you know, but like not everyone Shonda rhymes. But then the pandemic happened and she got pregnant and then she gets pregnant and she has her baby and Shonda gives her like three, three or four months to just, you know, be with the baby and take her time to come back. And for me, that's what it means to be in Shondaland that kind of care and understanding for life (laughs) that like actors are also human beings and have lives and deserve to have, you know, some time with their children and to take some teach. I I mean, how many productions would just kind of rearrange things so Katie could take the time she needed, you know, and we did, we did, we did that. It was a beautiful thing. And I think everyone was happy to do it. And I just think that is a testament to like what it means to be in Shondaland, to be so deeply taken care of. I have to note that I, my podcast, Liver and Cock Show, is also a production of Shondaland. And just that experience has been incredible. We're about to start um, recording season two. That was also an incredible experience. I'm deeply honored that Shonda sees me. It, it means so much to me because not because of who she is as she's a giant. She's very influential and powerful in the business. She's a genius storyteller, but she's also a black woman who I deeply respect, who sees me. Like, I feel like she really sees me as an artist, as a thinker, as a human being. And that level of support, just, I think when you give someone a job that is support, when you like say, let's do a podcast together, that support, that level of support from her, it's everything. It really is. It's just, it's deeply humbling. And it's just, I'm really, really grateful for, you know, I, you, I would not have a career if it weren't for people like Shonda Rhimes and Gingy Cohen, mostly women actually, who have hired me and given me jobs um, over the years deeply, deeply grateful for those women. And there's, there's some men too, uh, there's some trans folks. And, but like, I just to have, you know, I mean, Gingy Cohen is huge. You know, she created Orange is New Black and like that changed my life and getting to work with Shonda. And, um, you know, speaking of doubt, you know, it was a husband and wife couple. It was, it was a man involved, Tony Phelan and uh, Joan Rader um, hired me for that job. You cannot have a career if people don't believe in you. If people in high places with power don't see the talent and don't believe in you. And I've been very lucky to have people believe in me and um, go to bat for me. There's just a lot of that in my life. And I'm just, I mean, a whole NBC universal, you know, has like invested so much in me being, you know, their new red carpet host. It's like really deeply humbling and I'm so honored. And again, it's gonna be imperfect, but I know that that's okay. I'm gonna be me. And I'm going to be authentic and I'm going to try to be in my values. And hopefully people will continue to, you know, see the talent and want to continue to invest in me. And I will do my best to deliver. I like to deliver. My idol, Leontine Price, talked about, you know, she's an opera singer. She's, <laughs> she, but as she got older, she got very sort of arrogant about her work. She was doing an interview and she, after she retired, she was just like, she was talking about singing on your interest and not your capital, basically, you know, having a nuance in your singing. And she was just like, you know, provides a certain level of longevity. And she was like, I can still deliver a performance. I can still deliver. And then she talks about when she did, um, she was the first black woman to sing televised opera in 1955. She was like, I delivered. 
And she talks about when she opened the new Metropolitan Opera at Lincoln Center. She opened Lincoln Center in 1966. These are huge moments in a, in a person in an opera singer's career. She's like, I sang like an angel. I delivered. You know, she's from the South. I love this thing that she's like, I can deliver a performance. But she also says, I sacrificed when she talked about opening the new Metropolitan Opera House. She's like, the year leading up to that, I lived almost like a nun. I sacrificed everything so that nothing could stand in the way of me being at my absolute best. And it's beautiful to have all these people believe in me and invest in me, but I come that way. I, I, I really have made a lot of sacrifices, personal sacrifices, social life, a lot of things, so that nothing will stand in the way of me being my absolute best when it comes time for me to perform. I mean, you saw me on the set of <laughs> Story in Rain. Oh, yeah. I don't phone it in. I don't, Laverne doesn't phone it in. And that's not just with photo shoots, it's with everything that I do. So I work to deliver. So I'm, I'm pleased that people... So many powerful and influential people have invested in me and believe in me. And I want to return that generosity by giving 200% every time. Trans representation in the media has come a long way, but what would you like to see more of at this point or what haven't we addressed yet? This one's deep and complicated because I think it's a big question. There's more fictional characters, trans characters on television, fewer trans um, stories that center trans people were like secondary characters on a lot of things, which is great because more trans people are working, but fewer shows by trans creators are getting bought and produced. So we need more of that. And I think we need more effective media pushback against the propaganda, the right-wing propaganda that is happening against trans people right now. There is a, and I don't know, it's, it's tricky because of the echo chambers, but there's just generally no pushback. You know, I did an episode of my podcast about this with Chase Strangio. There's just no pushback right now. There's just like all this unchallenged propaganda about trans people that's just like sitting out there in right-wing media that is misrepresenting healthcare for trans youth, completely misrepresenting trans people in sports, completely misrepresenting trans people in general. So there needs to be way better pushback, more pushback. And that would be like a 24-hour job. Like I would have to quit all my other jobs, you know? It's the whole thing. So like, I think that organizations like GLAAD and human rights campaign and LGBTQ organizations need to do a better job of that because that's especially glad that is what part of what they're supposed to do be doing is combating this kind of like media propaganda. So I think that LGBTQ organizations can and should be doing a better job at combating this misinformation. And it's really hard and it's tricky. It's like, how do you infiltrate, you know, these sort of echo chambers and the, these algorithms that like, you know, feed on conflict and, and misinformation. It's hard, it's tricky, but like we have to figure out a way because lives are on the line. This propaganda is leading to public policy that is affecting the real lives of trans children all over this country right now, this in real time. Like, you know, I think there's been an injunction on the Texas law, but the law in Texas that would criminalize parents for like supporting their transgender children. Governor Abbott said, if you see a trans person, report their parent to the Department of Children and Families because a trans child existing as child abuse. This is like public policy. It's 
injunction against this right now, but there's another law in Arkansas, I believe, that basically criminalizes healthcare for trans youth right now. This is happening in real time. There's like state laws being passed. And see, this is partly why. (laughs) Again, Again, it's personal for me. And so I get very riled up when I start talking about this. So I have to stop. What's next on your list? What do you want to tackle on set? I know we were talking a little bit about theater. Yeah. I want to do theater, but like, and I just actually turned down a Broadway offer that a beautiful play. It was the hardest Broadway offer I've turned down, Um, but there was just no time. The theater has to come around at a time when I have time. I can't drop everything now. I have like, I can't drop my e-job. I can't. Too many balls in the air. You have too much going on. There's, I can't drop everything. And you, to do a play, you have to drop everything. And I'm just too committed right now to do that. So eventually theater, there's a music project that I really want to make happen. I've recorded some music and I want to release it, but I want to release it properly. So um, God willing, that'll happen. Again, that's contingent on like, all my regular jobs, the music thing, no one's asking for that. No one's like paying me to do it. I'll probably lose money doing it, but it's something I just want to do. I, I want to have fun. I want to figure out more balance in my life. Yeah, you've been working so hard. I don't know if I'm getting better, but I'm like, I'm taking time. I think this current relationship I'm in is helping me like take time, not just be like work, 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 work all the time. Yeah, I want to do this music project. And I, I really, I'm so blessed to get to do other people's work. But what I'm excited about with the music project is I want, to, I want the video to be like a film. And there's this movie that, I'm, that I shot, you know, last year, late last year called Uglies is coming out. I don't know when. And so I want to do different kinds of work. And I want this video to be like that. Ooh. And I've, I've been manifesting it and putting it in the universe. And so I want to do different kinds of roles. I, you know, I've turned down a lot of things, but the things I have been taking are departures from me. The role I played on the blacklist, Dr. Perillos, is completely different than anything I've ever done before. And I had such a good time doing it. I love playing villains. I want to play more villains. So I want to keep stretching and keep playing, doing, playing fun things as well as things that are emotionally challenging. There's, there's some, there's so many things like I feel like we've only scratched the surface of what I'm capable of as an actor. But you can't, you know, the part you can't impose things on a role that aren't there. So I'm, I'm looking forward to plumbing the depths of my, my soul and my psyche and my traumas for new characters in the future. I want to do fun stuff, but I also want to do some really intense emotional character work as well. We can't wait to see it all. This is a great place to end the podcast. Before we go. What is on your list of current obsessions on a lighter note? (laughs) What are the six things you're obsessed with in your life? The six things I'm obsessed with. It's it's a weird thing. I try not to be obsessed. (laughs) Right now, one of the things I'm obsessed with, though, I really would say it is an obsession. I'm obsessed with French coloratura sopranos from like mid-century. Mado Robin is this French coloratura who sang like really high. The the French singers have tend to have this very spinny up French, certain French cultures have a very up high upper extension that's really, really spinny. And uh, a new soprano that I just discovered named Renee Doria, I'm obsessed with. Maddie Mesplay is another French coloratura from like the mid-century that I'm obsessed with. I'm obsessed with like that sound, this very spinny, 
upper register, like coloratura, sopran French coloratura sopranos that I'm obsessed with. Those are the three right now that I'm fully obsessed with that sound. I think because I'm working on that register of my voice and that spin that they're able to get and high C and above. I don't. I love listening to you do this. It's it's not. You can edit edit that. <laughs> we shall not. We shall not. I'm working on that, but the, the spin that they get up in that, up in that upper register is so cool. It's a work in progress. I'm obsessed with Billions. Billions is back. I love that show. Oh, you're obsessed with Billions. This, I find this interesting. It's the last season. Axe is not on the final season. Axe is not on. Yeah. This uh, Corey is, is so the, it's the new Axe. I've loved every season of Billions and I'm obsessed with Taylor Mason. Um, but what I love about this new season, the um, DA, the um, um, state's attorney, is sort of has this waging this war against billionaires, which is really interesting. It's an interesting critique in a very corrupt way, because everyone's kind of corrupt on the show yes. or is corrupted by money. And so I love that show and I love what's happening this season with like the sort of critique of like billionaires and, and sort of the question of do, should they, is it just immoral that billionaires even exist? That question happening on a show like Billions, I think is kind of brilliant. I'm obsessed with the sex lives of college girls. Brilliant show on HBO. I just, it just totally caught me off guard. And I know it's like a few months old, but I'm still obsessed with it. I've actually watched it twice and I freaking love it. I love shows about sex. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. It's so been on my list on my like Apple TV. I haven't dug in just yet. So it's smart and it's funny and it's fresh and it's it's not corny or cheesy because I think it's really hard to have shows about sex that don't feel trite preachy something we've seen before yeah. this is really fresh and fun it's really good leave it to Mindy Kaling leave it to Mindy I'm renovating um, an apartment right now and we're really close to being done done and I'm completely obsessed with my tufted custom headboard <laughs> Nice, Laverne. I've had this bed frame. It's like a vintage bed frame that I bought in Soho years ago. Mm. And it finally just like broke. Mm -hmm. The whole frame broke. And now oh, I'm no. literally sleeping on a mattress on the floor. I've been over that bed forever. Oh my God. I'm very much in the market myself for a new bed. It's like gray and it's a multicolored metallic and it's a Murphy bed and it's a Murphy bed. I've never seen a tufted headboard on a Murphy bed. So it's a very small space. I'm actually documenting it on my YouTube channel. So there's two episodes of the renovation already up, but I love this so much. I love a tufted headboard. I love just like a soft fabric and bed sleeping is so important. Like your bed is the most important thing and sleep is the most important thing. So having an, an area that like just a good mattress and a good, and we found a good mattress that fits in the Murphy bed. Cause the part of the issue with the um, tufted headboard is that we, had to get a thinner mattress and I was so nervous because I guess I can't be on a bad mattress because like I have to get good sleep. We found a, a brilliant mattress that fits into the Murphy bed and I'm super excited. Um, so I'm obsessed with that. Oh, I feel like that's such a good find. Yeah. Everything in this space is customized because it's a studio apartment and everything is kind of modular and serves multi-purposes. And I'm also obsessed with, we have an onyx table. Everything is cabinetry. So there's a table that folds down um, from the wall, like the Murphy, like a sort of a Murphy table, like a Murphy bed folds from the wall. Oh my God, a Murphy table. 
So cool. And it has an onyx top. And then it also has an onyx backsplash that is backlit. And the onyx, I picked the onyx, of course, myself. The um, backlight changes colors and I'm obsessed with it. It's so beautiful. It's like the stone itself is beautiful. I could just look at it all day, lit or not. But then when we turn on the lights, it's just, it's a party and it makes me really happy. I haven't moved in yet, but I'm just obsessed with my head tufted headboard and my onyx murphy table <laughs> murphy table i love this you have a you have a murphy table that's amazing but i'm also obsessed though too now with healing with practicing like really consciously practicing the tools of the community resiliency model and one of the big ones is resourcing. Resourcing is like, are the things that kind of get us through in every podcast um, of Laverne Coxia with what else is true. And what else is true comes from the community resiliency model that they, those things that even when things are rough in your life, there is something that is neutral or positive in your body and in your life. And that thing can become a resource. And when I, I was on vacation last week in Turks and Caicos with my boyfriend and like, we were on the beach. It's so funny. I have to tell my therapist this and like, cause we were on the beach and I was like, babe, and uh, three months, when we're stressed out, we need to think about this moment on the beach. We need to think about this breeze. <laughs> we need to channel this moment. We need to think about the breeze. We need to really get it in our bodies, right? The, the feeling of this breeze, the feeling of this sun on us, this beautiful like turquoise water and like just this perfect beach. We need to take this in and use it as a resource and really take it into our bodies. And then later in the week, my boyfriend was like, yeah, this is a resource. And he's like using the term resourcing now. But I'm obsessed with resourcing. I'm obsessed with how do I continue to heal and be the best version of myself. And so I have to constantly resource. I have to constantly use gestures. I have to constantly like remind myself when it's historical. I have to constantly remind myself that the most boundary people are the most compassionate people. I have to constantly remind myself that empathy is the antidote to shame. I have to constantly like have conversations with myself so that I don't spin out into like old shame tapes. So I don't, so I don't let myself dip into an old trauma pattern or an old trauma pathway. So I'm really obsessed right now with creating new neural pathways in my nervous system so that like I build real resilience, like a resilience to shame and trauma that can take me into my fifties and beyond. Because it's like, this is the thing about like all the stuff that like has, you know, all the traumas and stuff. It's great to be able to acknowledge it, but then it's like, how do we let that go now? I'm obsessed with letting it go. I'm obsessed with letting all of those things that maybe were useful at the time, were adaptive at the time, right? These things and we have the survival instinct in our bodies as human beings as an adaptive thing. We go into fight, flight, or freeze to, you know, release adrenaline and cortisol to fight a bear in the woods if we see it. And then we're supposed to come back to homeostasis. I've lived my life constantly in survival mode. And what has become adaptive, if you're constantly, if the bear is always in the room, if the bear is always there, it becomes maladaptive. That dosing of adrenaline and cortisol constantly depletes you. So I'm obsessed right now with being done with living in survival mode, with being done with living in old trauma patterns and old neuropathways. I'm obsessed with doing everything I can to live differently, doing everything that I can to be in my resilient zone, to be in my zone as possible and to live differently and to let 
it all go because it no longer serves me. I'm obsessed with that. Amen. You're the absolute best, Laverne Cox. Thank you so much for gracing our cover. And thanks so much for this conversation. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to see which picture you choose. Mark is a genius. It's stunning. I can't wait for you to see it. It's the bombshell. It's the sexiness that I have. And I feel like he really like sees that and brings that out in a way that no other photographer does. That's what the spread is. It's so bombshell. I love it. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I love the looks that Mimsor pulled. That was a magical day. That was a special day. I do this a lot. I do this a lot. And I've done a lot of magazine shoots and a lot of covers. That was a really special day. Oh, thank you for saying that. We made some good art that day. We made great pictures. So yay. Yay. Thank you. Have a great evening. Bye, Laverne. Bye.